our practices were often much more difficult than our games. And that was, that was pretty consistent throughout my four years at Duke, uh, but it was really true our senior year. And, and the competitiveness and the spirit of competitiveness was unbelievable. That is Shane Battier, co-captain of the 2001 Duke Blue Devils. And this is episode two of Return to Glory, the story of how Shane and his teammates reached the pinnacle of college basketball by winning a national title exactly 20 years ago. Hi there, I'm Jason Evans, the host of Return to Glory. I spoke to every member of that 2001 Duke team to learn about the ins and outs. What was the secret sauce that helped them to win a championship? In this episode, as you just heard from Shane, we're gonna focus on the practices because nothing works in a game unless you've worked on it a hundred times in practice. And co-captain Battier told me the first step to a good practice is being in shape. Looking back at, at my career, a huge, huge, huge part of our success is we were just in better shape than everybody else. And our preseason conditioning program and our preseason, it was really tough, like really tough. We're, we're running 17 across, which you have, to, you have to touch the sideline 17 times under a minute, and you get a minute of rest, and you got to do that like five times. And if one person doesn't make the, 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 uh, the sprint, do it again. And so there were more times when we were just yelling at, come on, Buck. Andre Buckner would be diving across the line, diving head first to make it because he didn't want to let down the team. And uh, I'll never forget just uh, going to Card Gym, which is the gym right across from Cameron. And this is this is back when, you know, nothing was air conditioned. Okay, so like a sweltering hot gym in Durham in September, and we're running sprints. Uh, but we knew, like, look, if we pay the price now, when we get into the ACC season, it's going to pay off. And, you know, one thing Coach K never let us do, we never, we were never allowed to bend over in fatigue. We were never allowed to grab our shorts and show people that, man, Duke is tired. And so it became a mind, I was taught this my freshman year by Wojo and, and Trajan, that when you're tired, you stand up and you never let the opponent see you fatigued because that's intimidation. And so uh, even though we were, we were so tired sometimes, if an opponent looked at us, they would look at us and say, dang, Duke is still, we're still fresh. We're, we're tired. And we knew that's when we had teams. So conditioning was one part of practice. But Shane told me the biggest key to success that year was the quality of the competition in practice. And we called the blue squad was, the, you know, the, the guys who were, um, you know, not Jay Will and, and Booz and, and me and Dunleavy. And they tried to, to take our lunch every single day. And some days they did believe it or not, and they would talk more trash, and, and you wouldn't hear the end of it. And so, uh, you know, the battles we had in practice, it was probably the, the, best, the best part of that year, because it was so competitive. And, uh, you know, it, it made, it, it made our, our games, even in the ATC, look like a cakewalk, like a cakewalk sometimes, which is crazy to say. You heard him right. Shane Battier says the battles in practice were often tougher than playing a regular season game against an ACC opponent. Again and again, I heard from members of the 2001 team that the blue squad, the non-starters, were truly unique that season. Here's a member of the blue squad, walk-on Andy Borman. One of the hardest parts 
for me of, of being a walk-on is, you know, you're part of that scout team, you know, you're, you're part of the team, you know, that, that you're, you're kind of taking on a new identity with every game. You know, if we're preparing for Wake Forest, now we're Wake Forest. And if you're preparing for Clemson, now you're Clemson. The thing that always cracks me up, I used to get in so much trouble with the coaches because we would be preparing for an opponent, you know, say we're preparing for Maryland and we're the scout team and the coaches are, you know, okay, Andy, you know, you're going to simulate Juan Dixon or you're going to simulate Steve Blake. Like, and then we would go out there and practice. There, there is no part of me that in any way can ever do what Juan Dixon did or in <laughs> any way, you know, in any way can do what Steve Blake did. Um, and the coaches would get so mad, you know, so mad at me, you know, no, no, no. He, he you know, like Juan's not going to do it that way. Andy, you need to do this. And I'm, I'm sitting there going like, I can't do this. I, I promise you, I want to, you know, I, I promise you, I, I would love to morph into one of these great ACC players to better prepare our team for this upcoming battle. But there is nothing that I can do to even remotely simulate that. And I'm trying my hardest. They would get so frustrated with me. And I, I didn't, there, there's nothing more to do. Um, you know, that, is so fun. that is really funny. It is true and it, it, it existed forever. I am probably, I'm probably one of the very few walk-ons that has ever been subbed out during a scout, you know, for not being able to do what the opposing player would ever do you know and they'd sub me and i'd be like yeah you know you you should i can't do this andy borman who was a starter on duke's nationally ranked soccer team would join the basketball blue devils a couple months into the season he was joined on the blue team by reggie love who did the same thing after football season ended i mean the camaraderie was really like you know like if you were on the blue team, I mean, there was a big camaraderie because like, you know, we would com we would compete against, you know, the starters all the time or the starters and two subs or whatever. And so like we always like wanted to like beat the shit out of them, like even if we were like running someone else's offense. So, you know, we felt like there, I think there was a high level of closeness and connectivity between the blue team. And I remember we would like, I think like maybe like middle of the year. We even like wrote like BT bombers like on our shoes or something like because we were like so, you know, jazzed up about our practices. You know, and can I, I can say, I ask how how often did the blue team beat the starters in practice? Look, anytime, anytime we were running an offense that had two, three high motion, we were most likely gonna like destroy them because ultimately like Shane was like such a big factor in the defensive scheme. And so anything that took Shane a man and a half away from the basket, like led to like us being able to like score the ball. And and we had like Dante Jones and who was like a great scorer. JD Simpson was a great shooter. Like we had folks who could like, who could play. There are two names you just heard, JD Simpson and Dante Jones that came up repeatedly when the members of the 2001 Blue Devils would talk about their practice scrimmages. Here's Ryan Caldbeck, another member of the Blue Team, 
reflecting on his teammates. I think one t- thing that's really hard for the coaching staff to, to teach, which I think the blue team in 01 had, is you just some moxie, just a belief that like we belong. And you saw that from much of the 01 blue team. I mean, I'm, JD, JD's really damn talented, JD Simpson. Um, and JD also like does not act with an arrogance on the court. He acts with a confidence and um, a confidence like we can beat this white team. And so he was the senior leader on the blue team, even though he was a walk-on. Uh, I think that helped. And you kind of go down each next member, right? You've got Dante, who was an NBA player, and everyone knew he would be an NBA player, and that gives you a shot of confidence. Andre Buckner, you know, you could probably look up, like, you know, the the uh, the tussle that he had with the UNC coach, uh, Matt Doherty. Um, you, you know, like, he doesn't take it from anyone. He doesn't take junk from anyone. Like, he's, he's a warrior. He, you want him on your side. And so there's so many practices where him and Jason – Williams or him and Chris Duhon might get into a little tussle and they're friends. They're, they're absolutely friends, but like he'd leave the tussle being like, screw these guys, screw these guys. We're better than these guys. We can beat these guys. And like, just pump us up. Freshman point guard, Chris Duhon said it was more than JD Simpson's shooting ability that made him a really special practice player. Hey, hey. JD, I mean, he was, he was very big in my development. Um, as a player, uh, you know, because we went against each other so many times in practice. And, you know, J.D. is just always positive and, like, always knew, you know, what to say. And, you know, you you respect – you know, a lot of people don't respect walk-ons or, you know, guys at the end of the bench because, you know, you can be judged as they're not good enough or anything like that. But, one, I thought, I thought J.D. was a great player. He knew the game. You know, and I respected how he he carried himself, how he and and not just him, all those guys, but him in particular, because he and I, you know, with me and Jay playing one and two, you know, it was Buck and 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 JD a lot. So, you know, we were always cross and match, you know, during our practice. So we battled each other throughout the whole year. Uh, but he always, you know, gave positive word. It looked like he never had a bad day. Um, and, you know, so I mean, he deserved to, to hold that trophy as much as anybody else. But no matter how good the rest of the blue team was, the real secret to their success was Dante Jones. Jones had transferred from Rutgers, where he was a star. NCAA rules meant he could not play in any Duke games that season, but he could practice. And wow, did he ever practice? I had nothing else. I had no games. Like, I treated every practice like a game. I got to be every team's leading scorer. I'm ultra competitive in general. Um, so I just used those just to just keep me at bay because that was the first time that, like, my best friend had been taken from me. That's, like, that's my first girl for basketball. And not being able to compete, not being able to play a game. You could Sometimes you can understand it when you're hurt. But if you're not hurt, you're fully healthy, you've been working hard, you've had success last year, um, and you just cannot participate in the games it's, it's, it's a it's a mental struggle so i just use that as my venting and, and my ability just to get out um some of the stress that i was under but also fall in love with the game and, and, and kind of take that seriously and help those guys prepare and just be better on a daily basis 
Shane Betty, Mark Hamlin V, Nate James were my matchups, but they also had to guard me, and I had the freedom to do whatever I wanted to. So they were they they were in trouble. <laughs> uh, but I mean, Shane, obviously, you know, one of the elite defenders in the history of the game. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what it's like to to play against a guy who's who's guarding you that way. Um, Shane is an elite defender, but he's he, his mental preparation for for defense is, is is amazing as well. So it wasn't just physical; it was the the mental part of Shane's about Shane's game that you were that you were fighting, and um, it was a, it was a great matchup. It helped me get better, expedite my transition into the program, and how hard I had to play, and and how I had to to just be at a different level um, to compete on that team. So um, Shane was just a tough battle offensively and defensively, but I could play defense as well. So like coach would have to like take me and like dial it down a little bit because it'd get super competitive and he'd be like, no, we need to be confident um, going into the next game. So like we, we both had different strengths and weaknesses. I'm, I'm a better perimeter defender. Um, so Shane played on the perimeter so I could do a lot of things, hold and, and, and I was faster than Shane. So it gave him a different dynamic to look at to prepare and to prepare at a, at a higher level because he wasn't going to see a defender like me in the games. So, so you're saying that coach K would say to you, Hey, don't crush their confidence, really? There, there are points and times where, yes, they're tired. They're coming in. Like, I'm fresh. I'm always fresh. So, yes, you're, you have a different – they're coming into practice, and you're coming in like it's a game, so you got to dial it back a little bit sometimes just to keep them keep their confidence going. And other times, he just let us go full blast at each other and just keep that competitive juice going. So it was a it, it was a ebb and flow of what we had to do to keep them going, but we also got to compete at a very, very, very high level. It almost seems crazy that a practice player could hurt the confidence of a starter, but Dante Jones was a truly elite athlete who would go on to have a long career in the NBA, winning an NBA title as a teammate of LeBron James. Have a listen to what Carlos Boozer told me about the intensity that Dante Jones brought to practices. I want to go back to, to Dante Jones for a second. When Jay Will and Coach K uh, allowed, kind of got... Dante able to transfer to come play with us. The rules were different than it is today. You had to sit out a whole year. So Dante knew he was coming to Duke to practice for a year. No games, practice. So let me tell you what Coach K, what I, what, uh, what Jay Will, and what, and what, uh, what Dunleavy told Dante. Dante, use, we call him Tay. Tay, use these games. Use these practices as, the, as your games and bust Shane's ass, okay? Because <laughs> Dante, Dante was a, a, a pure scorer. Like, he's coming from, from Rutgers where he's, he's getting buckets every which way you can think of. And by the way, he's a freak athlete. And by the way, he's a lockdown defender, which is what he was for 10 years in the NBA. He was a lockdown defender. So his pra- he was all over Shane the whole season. I mean, listen, Shane is one of the most competitive dudes, also one of the most successful college players in the history of college basketball. One of the best college players ever. His four years, magnificent what he's able to accomplish. And Dante was in his shit every day, eating his lunch every day in practice. And he's from Jersey, so he's letting them know all about it. He's talking to him, he's talking to Every practice for Dante was a game. I'm going, to, I'm going to go bust Shane Battier's ass. Shane Battier to Dante Jones was like Derek Jeter of college basketball. You know what I mean? Like he was clean resume, always a winner. Like that's how Dante viewed Shane. And he wanted every part of that matchup. 
As I spoke to the 2001 team about their practice scrimmages, Dante Jones's intensity wasn't the only thing that stood out. Again and again, the big men on the team would come back to how tough their battles were in the paint, especially when you were playing against the physical beast that was Carlos Boozer. Here's power forward Nick Horvath. It's like probably how it is in every coach, but like as the bigs, we used to always feel that coaches were hardest on us, you know, like, man, these guards just get to run around and shoot threes and we're down here like getting our ass whooped and just getting yelled at. So I got a story about Carlos. So I was like, you know, a skinny six foot nine white kid from Minnesota. Like when I showed up at Duke as a whatever, 17 year old, I probably weighed like 185, you know, I was six, nine. I was like, <laughs> I could hide behind a stop sign. Right. And Carlos, we, we, so the beginning of the year, we get like baseline measurements and like pull-ups, push-ups, bench press, all this stuff. Carlos has like never lifted weights before. And we're doing, we're doing a uh, bench press max. And um, there's like, 235 pounds on the bar right so 245s and no one can do it like we, we worked our way up and carlos goes down he's got like close grip on it like because he just doesn't know what he's doing and he like lifts it off the thing and he like does like eight reps he's like looking around he's like asking <laughs> asking will the weight coach he's like am i doing it right and he's just like <laughs> obliterating all of us on this bench press thing as it's like he's never done it before, but he's like superhumanly strong already. And we're just—I just remember looking at him, being like, "Oh my god, what is this?" So Carlos was just—I remember in practice, they would stat everything in practice, and so it'd be like Carlos on the A team, and I remember going through like a zone or something. So like on the on the blue team, we're like the second squad. We have to run this zone. And they're like, we spent like an hour straight going, playing this two, three, and they were running this play. And so they're statting all the, they're statting the whole thing. So rebounds, assists, points or whatever. <laughs> I remember looking at the, Casey and I are looking at the thing at the end of practice and we're like, Jesus, Carlos scored 85 on us today. <laughs> <laughs> Carlos had 85 points, <laughs> you know, like, because they were running the same, like, ducking set over and over again. And you're just like, I don't know, 285 pounds ducking in on 190. You just couldn't do anything. You know, he was just a monster. Fellow big man Matt Christensen echoed those comments. He said there was only one word for the battles in the paint, violent. And we would often either in Cameron or in Card Gymnasium, just adjacent, uh, work out with me, Carlos Boozer, uh, uh, Casey Sanders, and, and Nick Corbeth when he was healthy. And those were, those were rough. Like, I, it's hard to express the, the level of like, uh, I, I hesitate to use the word because it, it can be so much worse than it was, but the level of violence that was going on uh, in those conditions, you know, there were no fouls called. And and so as soon as somebody kind of fouls you and it doesn't get called, you both get frustrated at the coaches who are putting you through this, but also at the player, you know, your teammate who fouled you because most likely you missed the shot and yet got nothing from it. You know, if you, you foul me and I go to the line, 
that kind of is fair. If you foul me and I miss and nothing happens, like I've been dealt with unjustly. And so I will exact justice on my own. And so you have like this kind of mutually assured destruction uh, that you inch towards as you just get increasingly harder and harder in how you foul each other. And, you know, I, I think the coaching staff felt, uh, and to some degree, I agree, although maybe not to the degree that they felt it, that a lot of the stuff that happens in the front court and under the basket is, um, is just a matter of guts and effort. And so being tough enough to kind of fight through, uh, you know, getting annihilated by two people your same size, uh, as you kind of fight over the single like life jacket, as you all try to get off the sinking ship, or whatever the metaphor is, you know, there's one person who's going to come out of this without some sort of punitive measure. And you're all just desperate not to, to be that person and not to be the one who has to, you know, do 17 across or suicide, uh, you know, after you're fully exhausted. So, uh, you know, they were trying to just make us as tough as we could. And when we didn't play well, and this continued into the season, uh, when we didn't play well, it was just like, you know, I, I think the common explanation, I mean, I'm not behind closed doors with the coaching staff, but I think that the consensus was, uh, our problems will be solved by more front court toughness. And so uh, go toughen those guys up. And <laughs> the big guy conditioning was just like savage. Toughening up the big men. Reserve guard Andre Buckner told me a story about one way Coach K tried to toughen up Carlos Boozer at Andy Borman's expense. There was one practice where... Uh... You know, I, I know Coach was just pissed off at, at Carlos for something. And uh, and it had something to do with toughness or something like that. And it's just, he put Carlos on lock and basically told him to stand there. And and our, our guy, Borman, uh, poor kid, was just, his task was just to basically run into Carlos. And Carlos was, I think he was either trying to cheat to take a charge or be tough or something. But I mean, it was, it was one of the scariest moments because you know you know andy's you know six one and and here you got this big ass you know boozer who you know andy's just piling into him and it and it looked scary man it's like man andy are you okay so when the practices were over it was time to hit the showers and that was time for the team to let off some steam and let in some practical jokes here's mike dunleavy i mean there is yeah we had some we had some funny stuff um you know, I recall one, uh, you know, you get guys like singing in the shower. You'd have to ask uh, Andre and, and Andy about the bagel in the shower episode where, you know, like one of the things back then with, with feeding the team was there was limitations on meals and things like that. So like the, the maximum you could provide for, before practice for a meal was like bagels, right? Not like not like san like breakfast sandwiches or omelets or anything like that. So it was like bagels. They throw down the bagels with like the spread and the schmears and things like that. And then like these bagels just like took a life of their own. Guys would, you know, guys would bring them in the shower and guys would do all this shit in the hot tub with them. And like, it was just like this running joke, bagel in the shower. But, you know, it's just, just, just funny stuff like that. It was always like these inside jokes. All right, so Mike said I had to ask Andre Buckner about bagels in the shower, so I did. I was supposed to ask everybody about bagels. 
bagels in the shower or something like that. What's, yeah. what's the story? What's the story about the bagels? Yeah, man. <laughs> it's just uh, every every uh after every practice, we you know they always had you know different little snacks and assortments out for us, man. So bagels was one of those things that was always there, and uh and. <laughs> You know, you after practice, you just grab your bagel or whatever, and you, you cream it up, and you know you got you only got a certain amount of time, so you got to get ready. You got to hit the bagels in the shower, man. You can't you can't sit there and eat them. You got to go get in the shower and eat your bagels in the shower. <laughs> so we just made a cool song about it, man. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, you made a song about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Do you remember? Come on, you gotta more, sing me some of the songs. More like a more like a tune, more not necessarily a song, but more like a tune. It's just, you know, you walk through bagels in the shower. <laughs> just, <laughs> just one of those things that get a chuckle out of somebody, man. It, 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 you know, it, it, uh, it not just said, and it, it, it took off. I think they thought it was way funnier than I did. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's something I just blurted out one day, and it stuck. So if you ever happen to see a member of the 2001 Duke Blue Devils just sing bagels in the shower, and you're sure to get a smile in response. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, a preview of the next episode of Return to Glory. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to Return to Glory, the story of the 2001 Duke Blue Devils. Okay, that's enough about practice and preseason. In our next episode, it's time to play some games. And our first stop will be a game that has turned into a legend. So they were ready for us. They were they were hungry. Their fans were into it. The environment was wild. But I remember coming into that huddle and Coach K saying, we're not gonna lose. And I'm like, what? We're not gonna, not gonna lose. What do you mean? Down, double digits here. But we're walking out on the court and you know, I look at Jay, and Jay just winks at me. So the first start going in my head, it's like, what the fuck are you winking at me for? Like, you fucking playing terrible. Like, we about to get our ass up. The story of what has come to be known as the Miracle Minute on the next episode of Return to Glory. Return to Glory is a production of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is written, produced, and hosted by me, Jason Evans. If you want to get every episode as soon as they are released, please subscribe to the Duke Basketball Report podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to reach out to me, email dbrpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week when we hear all about the first epic matchup between the 2001 Duke Blue Devils and the Maryland Terrapins. <laughs>